You're listening to the Mind Your Business Podcast, episode number 210. Today, I'm speaking with Seth Godin himself, all about the new type of online marketer. So, stay tuned. Hi, I'm James Wedmore, and I've built a multiple seven-figure internet business that offers the financial freedom to do what I want, when I want. And I'm the first to say that hard work and hustle are not essential ingredients for your success. So, how do you build a thriving business from the inside out? Now, with over 2 million downloads, this is the Mind Your Business Podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? James Wedmore here, and thank you so much for tuning into another Monday edition of the Mind Your Business podcast. I'm so excited today because in a moment, we're going to get into the interview that I had with the bestselling author, Mr. Seth Godin himself. We're going to talk about his new book, This Is Marketing, available now. You can actually pre-order it today if you're listening, Monday. The book will be officially available November 13th. So we'll link that up in the show notes for you guys so you can grab your link to purchase it on Amazon. Grab it. I have my early, ooh, fancy, uncorrected proof for limited distribution copy here myself that I've been reading through. It's huge. So I have not read it all, to be honest with you. It's 300 pages. But my team and I have been sorting through it, making notes, and use a lot of it in reference to have my interview with Seth. Now, so we'll get into that in a moment. Two things I want to talk about first is a quick update from me. For those of you been following me on Instagram, you know that I just got back from my mastermind. I'm in a mastermind with some extraordinary human beings, some humanoids that are all uh, seven and eight figure earners. They all have online businesses. And I always like to take a moment and reflect on the reflection of the mastermind because it's such a gift, such a like essential thing that we all have. A group of like-minded people, so we don't feel alone. People that can see your blind spots, who can support you, hold you accountable, push you up, you know, keep you going. A little friendly competition at times. And that you can have that tribe. Like people you can meet with in person. That's why we facilitate so many in-person events at all of our coaching levels, because it's just it's like such a critical piece. And this is coming from an introvert. Like this is coming from someone who's like super introverted. And even sometimes, yes, for me, it can get overwhelming to be around so many people in such a short amount of time. But I know how important and how valuable it is, even for the introvert. So a lot of takeaways, but the biggest takeaway always for me is the gift and value of pausing, of stopping of reflecting on where we've come, how far we've come. And there's something I learned a long time ago. It's something I noticed myself. And then of course, like neuroscientists start talking about this and you're like, ah, aha. And it's that we tend to minimize or distort or like delete completely our accomplishments in the past. We tend to discredit how far we've come. We tend to ignore what we've accomplished. And these are always moments for me. And I want it to be a moment for you, maybe just because it was just a moment for me. It could be a moment for you right now, especially because we're going into the last two months of the year. 
And for most people, it kind of winds down, you know, like, oh boy, a lot of holidays, a lot of parties, a lot of, you know, festivities, time off, etc. So for a lot of people, the year's already kind of starting to wind down. That's unnecessarily true. Okay, I know people who are like launching and we've launched in the beginning of December. So it ain't over yet. But what I'm getting at is if you're not going to take the time now, when are you going to take the time to just stop, to pause, to look back at how far you have come? And to not go, well, it's not far enough. It's not fast enough. I want, you know, we, we create these expectations, which are just these like made up stories and rules about how far we're supposed to go by when and how fast by when. But if you've never done it before, how the heck would you know how fast and how far you're supposed to go? How would you know? So we make up like, well, I, I should have been further by now. I should have had more by now. But if you've never done it, where's this should have and would have even coming from? How would you know? You've never done it. Well, when I compare myself to others, oh good, so we're comparing ourselves to others again. When you compare yourself to others, the challenge with that, as you already know, I don't need to tell you, but I'm going to, is that you're not accurately comparing yourself to them. You're comparing everything about you because you know you you know your life you know your history you know your story you know what your journey has been and you're not comparing that to the entirety of someone else's journey are you are you no you're just looking at their end result what you can see right now today you have no idea oh no they said in their webinar that they started this business six months ago first of all i'm gonna get real for you i've seen people say that and half the time they're lying to you. I'm just going to get real and straight. Okay. It's not like a lie as much as it's just manipulation. They started this business six months ago, but they might've had three or four other businesses for five, six years, 10 years that failed. So I hear that a lot. Oh, I've only been doing this for three months. No, you've been doing this topic, this niche, this project. But you didn't just like wake up three months ago and say, I'm going to start a business. I've never done that before. The point being is we never have the full story for somebody else's life. We, we never know their full journey. You have no idea. People look at me. People say, oh, easy for you to say, James, or blah, blah, blah. But I've been doing this for 11 years now. It was November of 2007, which by the way, this is going to bring us into the story because this is just crazy full circle moments here. It was November of 2007 when I had the idea for my first online product. That was the beginning. That was it. I've taken consistent action in that direction for 11 years. And this is where it's gotten me. The question I want to ask you is where are you going to be 11 years from now if you start taking that consistent action in that direction? Now, if you compare yourself to others, do you think you're going to get where you want to go faster or slower? Is it helping you or hurting you? Well, I can tell you by the way you feel, it doesn't feel good. So it's definitely not helping, right? It's hurting. But for me, that journey started 11 years. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know if I've told this story before, but there was a moment. I have told people this story. I don't know if it was on the podcast, but there was a moment probably about four years into my journey. I was still very struggling, struggling like you wouldn't believe. And I remember getting an email from somebody else. It was like one of the gurus that I was following. And I click and I open that email 
and it takes me to a landing page. And the landing page was like beautiful. There's great copy and I heard a little voice in my head. And the voice said, because I was like following that person. And the voice said something to the effect of, look how good this person's stuff is. Your stuff isn't this good. Therefore, it couldn't ever be. Therefore, why would anybody want to work with me, buy from me, opt into me, follow me, if there's someone out there doing it better? Better landing page, they get it out there faster, better copy, more influential, bigger following, more results. Why would anyone ever want to follow me? And it was in that moment, I'll never forget it. I just was sitting there in front of the computer just reading an email of someone I'm supposed to follow. And in that moment, I talked myself out of the life that I have right now. Right now, this life, this one, guys, like the one I'm living, I had talked myself out of it. And I'm lucky that I had support groups. It sounds funny to say it like support groups. Like I was a part of masterminds. I was going to events, coaching, mentors, continued learning. And then beneath all of that, there is something of a foundation of unwavering commitment that I've always had. That I see things to the end. When I decide in my life that I'm going to do something, time is irrelevant to me. If it takes me 11 years, so be it. If it's going to take this much work, this much challenges and lessons to learn, mastery to have, so be it. And I'm just going to do it no matter what. And so I was able to catch myself. I was able to talk myself back into it. But those were the things that slowed me down. Not that individual that I was looking at their landing page, but me talking myself out of it. Where in your life or in your business are you constantly talking yourself out of what you want? One step forward, two steps back. Two steps forward, one step back this, but (laughs) I want this, but I'm excited about this, but we talk about this concept of alignment. One interpretation of alignment is when there is no but anymore. There is no listening to the voice that wants to talk you out of this and keep you safe and keep you protected. Make sure you're looking cool at all times. So people only say good things about you. Could you imagine where I would be? Like, definitely not on this podcast. Definitely you not listening to me. If I was more concerned about what people thought of me than me wanting to help people. Like, we got some bad reviews when I started this podcast. Oh, oh, better stop it. <laughs> better, better close it up, right? And it sounds silly, but isn't that what you do? I see it all the time. So anyways, okay, so that was 11 years ago. So get this, around that same time, probably about six months earlier, I had actually just graduated from college. So I was like 22, turning 23. You can just remember that, that time. And I had immediately after graduating college, I had decided I'm going to move in with a friend. You know, I like didn't really have a job, but hey, let's go pay rent. (laughs) And 
I was, I was doing some things on the side, like just anything I could. I was selling stuff on eBay. I was working for my dad part-time as a real estate agent. I hated that. I was working at a gym. I've told people this story. I was a janitor at a gym. I was cleaning urinals, replacing the urinal. That was just awful. Like I would spend hours vacuuming this like massive 10,000 square foot floor. It would take two hours to vacuum the floor every night. And I would just put on like Tony Robbins and motivational tapes. And that's when I feel like the, the magic started happening inside of me. Anyways, it was about this time I was completely broke. And my roommate at the time had an idea for a business. And he had a graphic design background. So he designed this website. I actually thought it was a brilliant idea. But I had no like online business education or anything. So this is like 2006 moving into 2007. And I said, I, I want in. How can I be a part of this? I didn't know what I was doing. I was making every mistake in the book. And the short version of this story is I remember I said, I got to learn this. I got to learn business. I got to learn marketing. And I went to the local Barnes & Noble. I'll never forget where it is. It's, it's the one off of Jamboree in the 405. Five? The five. The five in Jamboree. Walk into the Barnes & Noble and you know, go and I found the business and marketing section for the first time. And I had $80 in my bank account. That's it. I had 80 bucks. And I sat down and I looked at Barnes and Noble like a library. And I just started reading any business and marketing book. And I was there for about three hours <laughs> and, you know, just immersed myself in it. And because I had $80 in my bank account, I spent $78 on books. I spent every dollar that I had to buy the books. And two of the books that I brought home, one was a Dan Kennedy book, No BS Business Success. That was like the first book and it hit me. It hit me because the first chapter of that book describes what it is to be an entrepreneur. And that was the first time in my life, 23 years old, that someone had described who I was. And I was like, that's me. It's like, this guy knows my soul. And the next book I read was... A Seth Godin book. Now, Seth has written 18 books. I'm like, you guys know him. And it's crazy that here was this guy 11 years ago with $80 to his name, spending whatever money he had left to learn business and to learn marketing for not even my own business. I was trying to help a friend build their business. And that just, by the way, side note, became a total disaster. That was my first lesson. There was a lot of lessons learned there. But I shortly went off to start my own. And that was my bartending business and, and bartend for profit. And it's crazy now to 11 years later, someone who helped me through their books get my first start, give me that first spark of inspiration of, oh, maybe I could do this and maybe this is possible for me, is now someone that I'm interviewing on my podcast. As a regular listener of the show, you know that I don't regularly talk about marketing. You don't hear me talk about Facebook ads and funnels here because I like to talk about the inner game, you know, the mindset, as they all say. But this was just such a full circle moment for me to be able to bring Seth on, who's been such a hero. He's been a leader, an icon in the industry. And he's been someone that stayed so relevant for so long. He's produced so much cutting edge content that I just knew I needed to bring him on to you guys. So I know you all know Seth, but I got to do the official bio. So Seth Godin is an author. He's an entrepreneur. And most of all, he's a teacher. Now, 
In addition to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, Seth has written 18 best-selling books, some of which you've heard, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, and What to Do When It's Your Turn. And although he's renowned for his writing and speaking, Seth also founded two companies, Squidoo and Yo-Yo Dine, which was acquired by Yahoo. And in 2013, Seth was one of just three professionals inducted into the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. In an astounding turn of events, in May of 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame as well. And he might just be the only person in both. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here is Mr. Seth Godin. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with... The man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Seth Godin. Seth, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it is absolutely an honor to have you here. You're a legend, if I can talk you up a little bit. I mean, I remember like not even having the money to buy your books and sitting, like when I was nobody living in my parents' basement, sitting on the floor of Barnes & Noble in the business marketing section, pulling out books like Purple Cow and thumbing through the pages because I had to decide how much money I, I could really spend on which books. And well, if I just sat there, you know, I could learn a lot, just almost like turning Barnes & Noble into my personal library. It's really an extraordinary experience to be able to like, talk to you and have you on the show. And that really leads me into the, the first question, which is what now you, this is your, the book you're coming out now. This is marketing. This is, this is going to be your 18th book. Is that correct? 19. 19. Okay. What do you think has like, I think we've both seen people like authorities and leaders and experts like come and go, but you have been this person that has just been this like prolific, relevant leader for so long. What do you attribute that to? Not dying. <laughs> uh, in the I, literal sense or in yeah, a metaphorical? Well, in the literal sense, but figuratively, avoiding shortcuts mm. is the best route that I know. Yeah. What does a what, shortcut look, look like? Well, a shortcut for someone who does what I do would be to do sequels of books you've done before. So the Permission Marketing Handbook, Permission Marketing Volume 2, the updated edition of Permission Marketing. People mm. ask me to do all of those things. And you say no I, you say no to those? Every time. Yeah. Because I'm not trying to be in the book business. The books are an output that's part of being in the business of seeing how the world works. And so coming up with a way to sell more books is not on my agenda. I don't pay any attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second shortcut yeah. would be to go on television, to go on Twitter, to figure out how to become a shorter term sensation. You know, I've written 7,400 blog posts and not one of them has won the internet. Not one of them has <laughs> been the blog post that everyone read one day. And that's the way I like it. If you're not trying to write, you know, seven shortcuts they don't want you to know, yeah. then you don't die when that doesn't catch on. Instead, one letter at a time, one post at a time, one book at a time, you say, this is my practice. This is what I'm here to do. And I'm not the only one who does this. The people who have posted a thousand blog posts or 5,000 blog posts all report that they're glad that they did it mm-hmm. because it creates a discipline that lets you do this other work. I love that. And it's kind of like the tortoise versus the hare, isn't it? Just keep putting one foot in front of the other consistently. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. And I learned it, you know, my 
I worked with Isaac Asimov before he died. He was one of my heroes. He published 400 books in his lifetime. Wow. You know, there are people who have decided to be a professional with all that entails, which means showing up when you don't feel like it, which means doing the work without regard necessarily for momentary authenticity, but instead focusing on consistency, because that's what your customers really want from you. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And so it sounds like just about every single one of your books really offers a new perspective or a fresh take on marketing and and business. And with your newest book dropping November 13th, this is marketing. What, What would you say is the overall premise or perspective that you're offering in this book? Well, it's a it's a big shift for a couple of reasons. It's my first full-length book with a publisher in more than five years. Because again, I don't wake up in the morning saying, how can I publish a book today? It's too much work. Mm. And secondly, instead of saying, here is a notion like the dip or purple cow, it says, for 30 years, there's been a marketing revolution. I've been writing about it for, since 1998. And let's take a deep breath and once and for all say, it's not that other thing. It's not Super Bowl ads. It's not pop-ups and <laughs> pop-unders. It's not programmatic. It's not shortcuts and hassles. It's not hustle. We need to call those things something else because marketing is the act of making things better by making better things. Marketing is what we call it when we make a change that people ultimately thank us for. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people want to do that marketing but they're afraid to talk about it because it doesn't feel like what marketing is, quote, supposed to be. Right. I think we can both agree that the people that have the better products and have the things that are going to make the change tend to also be the ones that feel the ickiest or the like they feel like marketing and, and sales is like this slimy, slimy thing. Right. What do you say to like that objection to those people? Well, we only feel that way when someone's trying to market us something we don't want. Mm. We don't feel that way when we're waiting in line to see a movie. We don't feel that way when we're excited because they upgraded our our smartphone. We don't feel that way when a religious leader or a political leader does something that we think makes the world better. So we reserve the icky feeling for when it's done to people, not when it's done with them or for them. That a great high school teacher does not feel icky about teaching biology because if you have enrollment from your students, you are taking them where they want to go. Well, if you have enrollment for your software or enrollment for your, you know, lawn cleaning service, then it's not icky because they would miss you if you were gone. Yeah. I love that because I mean, we've all had those experiences of, of like, we have to take a shower after someone's tried to sell us something. And that would just be a great example of us not being enrolled with that person. But that doesn't mean we can't enroll our audience, our listeners and our readers into our conversation. In fact, you have no choice because Mm -hmm. you used to be able to pin people to the wall. There were only three TV networks. There was only two people in town who could sell you flowers, but Now there's infinite choice and limited attention. And so if attention and trust are the two key metrics, the two key assets, then you have to nurture them. You can't take them. And what would you say, maybe even just like, I mean, gosh, in 19 books, like maybe just even in the last 10 years, because you talk about in the book, just like the new way of marketing and 
this new generation. What is the biggest change or evolution revolution really that you've seen? Like, how is it different now than when you were starting these conversations years ago? Well, when we started, this is true. I had to persuade people, investors, smart investors, that one day most people would have an email address. That was a big <laughs> lift. Wow. Yeah. So now it's now it's a given that people are going to see 30,000 electronic messages in a day. It's a given that anyone with 20 bucks can buy an ad on Facebook. That's a given. Everyone knows that. Mm-hmm. And so people who are afraid are hiding by doing things like programmatic advertising, snooping around people's data, putting giant money into the big machine so it's not their fault, so they're not responsible. And so I guess the biggest change is that the door is now wide open for people who are willing to be responsible, who are willing to say, I made this, I made it for you, here it is. And who are open to having that other person say, nope, no thanks. When you say people that are afraid, do you mean marketers that are, yes. maybe have something to, to hide or? All, all marketers. Market, you know, mm-hmm. the, the book came from something I run called the Marketing Seminar. And 6,600 people have taken the Marketing Seminar. And I've gotten to watch through the electronic transom how they've interacted with it. And what we find is that in fairly short order, people learn the technique. They learn the strategy but they have a hard time taking responsibility. They have a hard time saying, oh, so now I need to make something no one else is making. Mm. So this is not a job. This is about leadership. That's hard. And so in every industry, I see people hiding. The pharmaceutical people say, well, I can't do anything innovative because the FDA won't let me. And the people at Procter & Gamble say, I can't do anything innovative because my boss won't let me. And my boss won't let me because the supermarkets won't let us. And we go down the list and down the list and down the list. There's always someone or something that won't let you take responsibility. And that's only an inch away from, so therefore I have to cut corners. So therefore I have to shade the truth. So therefore I have to spam people. Because if you're not responsible, well, then it's not your fault. It's not your job. It's like someone is selling cigarettes. Yeah. But... I don't buy any of that. I think the people who marketed cigarettes so brilliantly, including my late friend Jay Levinson, are responsible for the deaths of millions of people. Wow. And I think someone who has the solution to a problem, who doesn't market it well, is responsible for the fact that that solution did not get used. That's, I mean, that's profound and I love that. And I think also just with the landscape today, it's much easier to have a company or a marketer be held accountable and, you know, have that voice of the consumer heard. You know, we've all seen ad campaigns that have gone sideways that have been, you know, not PC or offensive and like, they can't get away with that anymore. Like they're being heard. Yeah. I love that. I want to dive into a couple of the things that you have in the book. And first that really jumped out at me was this phrase smallest viable market. Can you share a little bit about what that means? Yeah, this freaks people out, marketers especially. (laughs) Here's what we're taught. You were taught to make average stuff for average people, for the center of the curve, to reach the largest possible number of people. That marketing is about mass, and if you can buy mass cheap, you can get more distribution, and that distribution will let you reach mass even cheaper, and then you will win. Mm -hmm. And 
it was true when you were selling Oreos. It was true when there were three TV networks and not that many supermarkets. But it's not true anymore. And the reason it's not true anymore is people have a choice and they're taking it. They have the choice to ignore you. They have the choice of what to buy. There used to be one kind of ketchup. Now there's 300 kinds of salsa. So the chances that you will make the next Heinz ketchup are zero. It's not going to happen. The alternative is instead of being a generalist, you can become a meaningful specific. You can focus on the 100 or the 1,000 or the 10,000 people who you have chosen. And you can say to those people, I picked you to make this for you. And if it's good enough and specific enough, they'll embrace it. And if they embrace it, they'll tell their friends. So the act of them telling their friends is what we used to think of as marketing. Hmm. But marketing now is making something that people will choose to embrace. And the reason this freaks marketers out is because if you pick 1,000 or 5,000 or 50,000 people and you bring them your best work and they hate it, now you got nowhere left to go. That's on you. Yeah. You didn't make the right thing for the right person. It's so much easier to just hope that right around the corner, Oprah is going to call you. That right around the corner, you'll get your TED talk. But that hoping is just hiding. And instead, it makes so much more sense to say, I see you. I see who you are. I see what you want. I assert that if I make this for you, you will say thank you. And if you do it and you're wrong and you do it again and you're wrong, maybe the third time you'll be right. This, I think, falls into this great analogy that you have of the lock and the key. Now, I always wonder, like, if you, like, remember everything you write once you've written the book or if you kind of have, like, amnesia from it. But I really love this analogy, which is, like, I think it kind of goes hand in hand here where most people are trying to, like, you know, almost, like, jam the square peg into the into the round hole with that. But, you know, what you're saying is always you know, start with what, your audience wants and listen that exactly is, so yeah. instead of making a key and running around for a lock that it fits find some locks mm-hmm. and figure out how to make a key for them yeah love that what are just to get even more specific on that because i know a lot of my audience could be at that place you know we get a lot of questions like how do i know if i have the right product Am, have i gotten specific enough or is there any type of questions or anything you can share when when someone kind of knows that they've they've really started to hit that mark with their audience, like I'm on to something. How do you know if you, fa- if you made the right product? You don't. Yeah. Have you gotten specific enough? No. Those are two easy questions. <laughs> um, so if someone's asking, have I gotten specific enough? The, if they're asking it, the answer is no? Correct. <laughs> okay, got it. You'll know because when you know. When you get specific enough, you will know. Yeah. That when you open a veterinary practice for Siamese cats and you realize that it's impossible to get more specific than that. Now you're specific enough, mm-hmm. right? That how will I know I'm right? The only way to know you're right is to bring it to the people you seek to serve. They will tell you if you're right. And they'll, they'll tell you with their, with their wallets. Yeah, that's, it, their opinion is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And you know, the question is really not that. The question is, did I pick the right audience? So mm. I was a book packager. So I really haven't done 19 books. I've done 150 books. And when I was a book packager, I did a book a month for 10 years with a team. We did almanacs. We did books on gardening. We did the Stanley Kaplan test prep books. And the first year, I sold the first book the first day. 
And then I got 800 rejection letters in a row. So that was evidence that the book ideas I was trying to sell were not good. But the question is, had I picked the right audience? Meaning, were there book editors who had a problem and money to spend to solve it? Were those book editors who had the money open to hearing from me? Could I learn from them what they wanted? And if I could get them what they wanted, would they buy it from me? And the answer to all of those questions was clearly yes. Hmm. My friend Lynn did the same thing with the toy industry. And after a year of her failing, the answer was clearly no. Why? Because it turns out book editors buy books from authors every day. But toy companies almost never buy toys from independent creators. So she was selling to the wrong audience. I was selling to the right audience, I just wasn't good at it yet. And that distinction is super important to make. A little aside, Mm -hmm. I persuaded Lynn to go into the book business (laughs) and on her very first try, she sold a concept that has since sold more than 6 million copies. Wow. Is it like a kid's book? It was a series of playing cards that Chronicle published that were called 52 Decks. So 52 things to do in San Francisco, 52 ways to say I love you. And you would just like go through these beautiful hand designed cards and it was in deck form, but it wasn't to play a game. It was just a format and it worked and it worked and it worked and it worked because someone at Chronicle was eagerly waiting for her to show up with an idea that good. Mm -hmm. Love that. One of the uh, phrases that I've heard elsewhere and I remind my students of is that I just, I I feel like we just, I see this as a mistake. Like people, uh, well, I have to tell them like, you are not your audience. Right? Like we tend to like use ourselves. If you're a professional, that's true. Mm-hmm. If so, you're an amateur, it might be true. Oh, can you speak more to that, the difference between professional and amateur? Sure. So you don't have to be a cancer survivor to be an oncologist. An oncologist is a professional. Mm-hmm. They are capable of imagining what you are going through. Mm. On the other hand, I'll pick a folk singer who loves folk songs and is singing for herself. And if she's lucky, that will line up with what other people want. But she'd do it anyway. She's an amateur. Got it. Okay. So do you have any advice for someone that that is even just like, they're struggling to find that first lock? Like, who is my audience? Does it have to be the same type of person that I am? Like, where would that person start looking to really get clarity? I I don't think that person is actually struggling with that question. I think the question they're struggling with is, what will happen if I fail? Mm -hmm. What will happen if I am shown to be the fraud that I believe I am? Mm. Because if you want me to tell you a market, here's one, on Saturday afternoon, go down the street to someone you vaguely know who's got a lot of stuff and say, if I run a garage sale with your stuff, you want to split the money? (laughs) And someone will say yes. And then you can go run a great garage sale and you'll make $500. And if that goes well, then next week you can hire some kids to run the garage sale and you can keep 300. And then the next thing you know, you're running 10 garage sales a weekend and you can quit your day job. Now, I know you didn't wake up this morning dreaming of being a garage sale magnate. That's not the question. (laughs) The question is, could you do this? The answer is yes, you could. And then the next question is, if you did this, would it give you momentum 
to realize there are other problems you could solve using marketing? And I'm hoping the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. But instead, you're waiting for perfect. And perfect isn't coming anytime soon. Yeah. Oh, so true. I love that. I love that. So to go back to a word I see you use in the book and like pre-interview, which I, I love is you really like to inspire people to make a ruckus and even just like juxtaposing that with this conversation you just opened up about responsibility. What, what does it mean for someone to create a ruckus and what does that look like in terms of being responsible? Right. So I leave a word out because it doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Mm -hmm. What I mean to say is make a generous ruckus. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. No, no hustle, mm -hmm. no shortcuts, no scams, no selfishness. Making a generous ruckus means showing up where you are needed and changing the status quo for the better. Making things better by making better things. That the best way to complain is by improving the world around you from the grassroots. That's what I mean by making a ruckus. Oh, I love that. The best way to complain is by making a difference in the world around you. Yes. And that's not my quote. I always forget the name of the guy who did it. Hold on a second. I'll tell you. Because I should be able to just say it off the top of my tongue. But for whatever reason, his name escapes me and I need to be fair. <laughs> it's because he's a rock and roller and that's why I don't remember. His name is James Murphy. James Murphy. LCD sound system. That's a, that's a great quote. So I've, I've picked out some just like amazing quotes from the book. And again, to remind you guys, Seth is dropping this book November 13th. Is it, that's the correct day, the first day people will be able to purchase on Amazon? Well, they, can, they can purchase it before then, but they won't get it till then. Okay. And if they visit seth.blog slash TIM, mm -hmm. they can find all the links plus some free videos and other good stuff. Here's something pulling up from the book. People don't want what you make. They want what it will do for them. They want the way it'll make them feel. And there aren't that many feelings to choose from. I feel like this is just like one of the core principles of marketing. And I feel like this is something that so many people just keep getting wrong. Can you speak a little bit more about this? Like what this even looks like? Well, sure. I mean, there are people who are waiting in line right now to buy a smartphone. 40 years ago, no one was. So the question is, did we just develop a need for smartphones? Mm. Of course not. When you didn't have one 40 years ago, you didn't feel insufficient or left out. <laughs> right. Because you didn't know what it was. Yeah. But we have a need to be connected. We have a need to feel sufficient. We have a need for status. We have a need, go down the list. Those are the basic human emotions. And when someone has a worthwhile product or service, it's because it delivers those emotions not because of the thing itself. I don't know if you're a big Netflix fan, but there's a, there's a show that's come out recently that I started binge watching called Adam Ruins Everything. And he starts talking about a lot of things that we kind of just take for granted. These, these same thing, these needs. And I don't know if you've heard too many of these examples, but like they started blowing my mind. He starts talking about things like how marketing agencies have created the need for more hygiene that like right. the, even just the idea of a shower a day and Listerine and mouthwash and like even the idea that halitosis was a made up thing and they created these sh shame campaigns back at what well, like, like the 1920s. It's crazy that that was all marketing. 
Well, it was the old kind of market. It was an so, old kind of market. Exactly. Yes. One of the most successful marketers of the 1960s was a woman named Mary Wells. And one of the things she's famous for is plop, plop, fizz, fizz, which you were probably too young to remember. But that was <laughs> the slogan for Alka-Seltzer. That's right. Okay. And yep. the, the reason it was such a success is because until she made that commercial, everyone only took one Alka-Seltzer. Whoa. So she just imagined that you needed twice as much, which doubled their sales. <laughs> and because placebos work, taking yeah. two, knowing that the fizz was going on and that the jingle was going on in your head actually did make you feel better because placebos work. The question is, should you use the placebo to help your customer or should you use the placebo simply to make a profit? Mm. Help your customer is the answer, guys. <laughs> it's, a, it's a more scalable long-term solution, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I love this. So bringing this into like the landscape today of social media, what are either like principles or specifics that we could start using to like, what does it start to look like when we apply everything you're saying to the social media platforms? I will start here. Mm -hmm. The Mona Lisa has a great presence on Instagram and she also shows up on Snapchat a lot. But as far as I can tell, she doesn't have an account. <laughs> what we learned from this is that you don't get a presence on social media because you're good at social media. You get a presence on social media because people want to talk about you. Mm. And that social media grooming is dramatically, dramatically overrated. It is way better to spend your time doing something worth talking about than it is to talk about it. What was That's the word used? Groom, grooming? Social grooming, yeah. What, and what does that mean specifically? Well, it's a, it's a term from wildlife anthropologists and mm -hmm. Darwinians. So what social grooming is, how do I fit in with the pack as a leader mm. so I will be able to mate more successful members of the opposite sex? And that preening the song the bird sings, all of the messages that animals send to each other, that's social grooming. So is that, is that more like putting the facade of, I got it all together and it looks yeah, perfect and manic? Yeah, that's a manic key part of it. Okay. That when we, you know, we believe that if people can see how many Twitter followers we have, somehow they will think more highly of us and then we will earn more trust and then blah, 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 blah. But it's very important to remember that if you are using social media, you are not the customer. I mean, yeah, you are not the user. Mm -hmm. You are the product. You are the product that is being sold to others. So they have intentionally invented social media to make you feel insecure and to make you feel like if you just spent a little bit more time, that insecurity would go away. Mm. It's built that way on purpose. There are people talking about you behind your back. Want to see what they just said? That's how it was built. Wow. So. I can't recall, because I've never met a Kardashian, I can't recall the last time I met somebody whose success was due to the appropriate, excellent, obsessive use of social media. Just can't even think of one. Yeah. Wow. So what are your thoughts on like just being, you know, contrarian, does it, you know, and being disruptive in your message in social media? and not trying to do this fit in grooming thing. Well, all I can tell you is what I've done. I don't use Twitter, I don't use Facebook, mm -hmm. I don't use Instagram, and I don't use Snapchat. Instead, every day I write something that I think 
will be useful to other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't use it to sell them anything. I do it because I can. Yeah. The end. Every once in a while, the trust and attention I have pays off, but I'm not doing this to make a living. I'm doing it to make a difference. And it turns out if you can figure out how to make a difference, making a living isn't very hard. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. And I think that that really brings it full circle to, I think, my original question. How does someone stay relevant for so long? You know, By being wrong a lot. <laughs> and being okay with that. But yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest mistake I ever made, a financial mistake, was in 1993 announcing out loud that the World Wide Web was foolish and it was never going to work, that Prodigy was better in every way. <laughs> and so for nine months after that, my company did nothing Mm-hmm. With the World Wide Web. And we were, that was so early, we could have bought every domain and built every single, we could have built eBay, we could have built all of it. But I didn't believe it, I was wrong. And I figured out how it felt in my head the day I changed my mind and decided it was the thing. What does it sound like when you change your mind? That sentence shifted things for me. Because now I try to make that feeling in my head all the time. Wait, changing my mind to say, see how it feels uh-huh. and then if it makes sense running with it if it doesn't make sense saying oh now I see the other side nah and I go back but this act of showing up with a blog post every day without repeating myself knowing that half are going to be below average was worth it because it made me better at understanding how the world works yeah well, I love that. Do you have any predictions for the future that you're willing to make a mistake or be wrong about? Well, my biggest one is that this is the next big thing, what's happening right now. The fact that we can treat different people differently. The fact mm-hmm. that we are one click away from two billion people. The fact that trust is in short supply. The fact that people have, in the developed world, enough of what they need, but never enough of what they want. That when you add all of those things up, most of those things aren't going to change anytime soon. Yeah. I agree with that a hundred percent. Well, Seth, I want to be mindful of your time and I just so appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. And I'm super excited about your book. Do you have any either final words or other thoughts or observations you want to share before we wrap up this episode? Well, you've been great and I really appreciate the attention I guess where I'm coming out is this. There are more creators than ever before. And some mm-hmm. people have said to me, what will happen if everyone creates and <laughs> you run out of listeners and readers? I'm like, that's not going to happen. I but agree. if someone is listening to this, I want to just beg them to go start creating as well. Mm. Make a blog, make a podcast, make a product, make a service, make a tour, make a thing you can teach because that's the best way to learn. I love it. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Seth's book, This Is Marketing, available. First day to get it, eleven thirteen. That's probably going to be here the day the episode's live. So you guys can go in the show notes. We'll link it up so you can grab your copy of Seth's latest book. Seth, Mr. Godin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I truly appreciate it. And again, it's just such an honor. You're an icon and uh, <laughs> it's pretty awesome to be able to chat with you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Go make a ruckus, really. (laughs) I love it. And thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the Mind Your Business podcast.
Did you know eight out of 10 businesses fail within their very first 18 months? I believe being an entrepreneur means unlearning everything that we've been taught our entire lives about what it really means to be successful, which is why I've created a brand new audio program entitled Activate. I wanna show you how to think, act, and behave like the successful entrepreneur that you were meant to be so you can step into the vision that you have for your life and your business. And the best part is this program is yours absolutely free. To register right now, simply visit www.jameswedmore.com forward slash activate and we can get started right now.